What I want to know is how come we only get one song? That, that was great. That was great. They should use that in the Marine Corps and a few other places. It's really great to be here. I appreciate the invitation and the interest that you brothers have in studying the Word. And we're going to go fast because we've got to cover a whole book. And you know how long I can take on a few verses. <laughs> In um, November, I taught this chapter of the book of Acts and the book of Philippians in five one-hour sessions. In Spanish, of course. So now I'm going to do it in English. And you're going to get more time than the brothers in Nicaragua got. So... Although, as we go along, I think you're going to find there's a lot of material, a lot of things that you could go further into. At least I always do. But at any rate, just be thankful to the Lord for the time we have together. And remember, you're getting double the time that they got in Nicaragua. (laughs) And write everything down. Take notes. Write everything down that you think you need to remember. Unless, of course, you're going to give them the money for the CDs, and then you can listen to it over and over again. But they didn't tape anything in Nicaragua, so they got only one time around, one shot at it. I want to read over. I'm trying slowly to switch to my new King James Bible. I've told you all this before. You know, I I don't use the English Bible very much anymore. And uh, since the 70s, I've had this one. It's been rebound. I have all my... Notes and poems and anecdotes and illustrations. And that's where I've studied. And there's a few places in here where there's a tear stain or two on the pages. And this Bible has just been my companion. And I go to the English Bible so seldom that I just never switched. But I know it's difficult for some people to understand the old King James English. I grew up on it. But if thou dost not talk like this, <laughs> thou dost not have to read a book like this. Uh, So I'm going to read to you a little bit out of the New King James, but then once we get going, I'm going to go back to my old war horse. I want to read you a verse. Let's read it together out of 2 Peter. Last chapter. Last verse. But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. This is what we want to do these two days together. We want to grow. We're supposed to grow all the time. The Christian never stops growing until he gets to heaven. And I don't know what we're going to do there, but I tell you what, we're not going to sit around on the clouds strumming harps and being bored. But down here we grow. We're all growing. And this is what the Lord says for us to do. Grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we're studying, the whole idea of this study together is to find something in the Word of God that helps me to grow. And I can tell you that my own personal experiences, and those of you who are teachers probably know this already too, that the person who has to teach it gets more benefit than the people who, who get taught because you have to go over and over the material. And I feel the edge of the sword of the word in my own life first. And so these passages are rich. They're full of teaching. They're full of truths that can help us. But you have to come with this objective. that You, you don't want to just hear. You don't want to just be entertained. You don't want to just be together. You want to grow. And, and your prayer be to the Lord, give me something, Lord, that will help me to grow. Even if it's just one thing, I think it will be more than that. But even if you just got one thing out of every hour that we spend together, one little lesson that helped you, just think how much better off you would be than if you hadn't come. So let's work at that and let's let that be our motto, not only now, but always, of course, but especially let's focus on that now. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to go to Acts chapter 16, because when we study, we're going to study the book of Philippians. And when you study a book, an epistle, letters like to the Philippians, if it's a church whose history is mentioned in the book of Acts, you should always go there first. So you get the background. 
Now, a lot of you were here two years ago when we took, what did we take? How many days to go through this passage that we're going to take uh, 50 minutes now to go through? So, a lot of you will remember it, and I'm not planning on repeating everything. There's no way I could repeat everything we did back then. But let's go through it. In fact, I think I'm going to read it. I might, I got to start sometime, so I think I'm going to read it in the new one. Acts chapter 16. We're going to start reading at verse 9, where the Lord says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them secretly or securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of God, the word of the Lord, to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God, with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent to the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, condemned uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Amen. And that's the beginning of the church in Philippi where Paul 
or to whom Paul writes this letter called Philippians. That's how things began in Philippi. And that's what we want to think about in this first period that we have together. The deep impact of the gospel. Let's have a word of prayer first. Heavenly Father, we come and thank you for the opportunity we have to be together. We thank you for taking care of us this week, for all the things that you give us, and especially now for this time that we can be together. And we recognize our need for you to speak to us through this book, that we need to hear something more than a human voice speaking to us. We need more than a mere message, a mere sermon, a mere study. We need to have the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. We need this living word to be applied to us in the way that the one who knows us perfectly knows that each one of us needs it. And so we ask you to do that, Lord, to speak to us now. We openly admit our need of you and your Holy Spirit, your presence in our midst. And we pray that you will bless this time in our study together and help us, give us eyes and minds that are open to see your truth and apply it to our lives. For we pray it in the name and for the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. The gospel is not like a circus or a fair, a county fair, circus. We get a lot. We don't have county fairs too much. We have circuses that come through Spain, and they like the winter in the south of Spain where we live now. And they come in and they set up their attractions and their, uh, their animals and everything. And uh, they stay for a while and then they leave and they move on to the next town. And they, they spend the winter down in the southern part of Spain where it never really gets cold. Uh, I think they do this in Italy and other places along the, maybe Greece too, along the Mediterranean. This is the way it is. But at any rate, you can always tell where the circus has been when they leave. It's not hard to tell where they've been. It's a big, empty piece of ground. No one's there. There's just a lot of trash on the ground. Paper and cans and plastic bottles and all kinds of stuff left. And then somebody's got to go clean it up. That's what the circus leaves when it leaves town. When the gospel came to Philippi and the gospel preachers Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, who's writing this that we have here in Acts. When those men left and moved on to the next city, they didn't leave behind a big empty lot full of paper, trash, and a bunch of people that were a lot poorer that had given all their money. Well, those people are experts, aren't they? They're taking your money. They put you on a ride. They charge you for it. You go around a few times. You get dizzier and you get off dizzy and poor. You're out the money you spent. You don't have anything for your life. You just had a good time. And I'm sorry to say that even among evangelicals, there's a little bit of that going on, a little bit too much of that going on in the world today. People who go to a place and they're willing to entertain people and take their money and give them a thrill and make them feel excited, but then when they leave, there's nothing. That didn't happen when Paul went. When he went to a town to preach the gospel, and someone, I don't remember who it was who said it. He said oftentimes there was either a riot or a revival or both. Amen. But you don't read that he went and nothing happened. And so we want to go through this chapter quickly and see the, the main points of what happened when they went to Philippi. See about the impact of the gospel there. And we want to learn some lessons about what can happen when you, when you go to an area and preach the gospel I don't know if anybody who's on the mission field hasn't read these because these are the kind of things you run into there. But you run into them in the states. You run into them in any town and city. You run into the, the principles that are here in a house, in a neighborhood, anywhere where you're preaching the gospel, anywhere where you're witnessing and, and trying to have a testimony for the Lord. These are the kind of things you can run into. And so we want to learn from this. First of all, let's look at the call. And uh, the call really is because we're breaking in here um, in verse 9. But really, you could say the whole first section of the chapter from 1 to 10 is the preparation for this call. He gets an SOS from Macedonia, a call for help. He didn't know he was going to Macedonia. 
And the Lord often doesn't tell us what the next step is going to be in life until we get to the place where we need it. We like to have it. Uh, the will of God come. One of these panels go off of the ceiling and a little golden thread come down with a box on it. And we open it up. And inside of that is all God's plan for our lives. We like to know the 20-year plan, the 10-year plan, the 5-year plan, the short-range goals and objectives. And what's on the agenda for the next week and especially tomorrow. See, that's the way we think. And God takes us along. That's exactly right. One day at a time. As your days are, the scripture says, so shall your strength be. That doesn't mean we shouldn't plan. It doesn't mean there's never any time when, uh, when we will know ahead of time what's going to happen. But it means that what God is concerned about is not for us to figure out the whole future. He wants us to live a life that is obedient to him now. He wants us to be growing now. He wants us to be responding to his word now. And not be worried about where that's going to take us in the future. But the Christian life is a life of faith. It's a perpetual, in some ways, a perpetual crisis of faith in the Lord. You never reach the place where you got it all figured out and you don't have to trust God anymore. You have to trust the Lord every step of the way. And so we see Paul here. Uh, he goes back to Derby and Lystra in these first few verses from 1 to 5, this area where he was previously stoned. We know he's a man of courage, a man of boldness to go back to an area where he'd been stoned and left for dead. And it's a good thing he did go back there because when he went there, he found a disciple. Not everything was bad. Not everything was negative in that place. He found Timothy, a certain disciple, it says, named Timothy in verse 1. And verse 2 says he was well spoken of by the brethren. That means that Timothy didn't have to go speak well of himself. Uh, uh, too many people spend a lot of time doing that, don't they? Uh, advertising themselves. Timothy didn't have to go present to Paul his resume and, and tell him, you need to take me onto your team. He was well spoken of. And by the way, in the New Testament, discipleship is that way. The, the men, like our Lord, of course, to start with, he called the disciples to him, the ones that he wanted. Everyone was called to follow him. But then for that inner circle of men that he was going to teach and train, he called them. It says he, he called them and he took them up onto a mountain and he began to teach them. And Paul called Timothy. He wanted Timothy to go with him. Because he heard about Timothy. He saw him first, that he was a disciple, that means a learner. And he heard about him from the other brethren. He probably asked, what about this young man named Timothy? It looks like he's uh, following the Lord. And they said, oh, he is. And, they be, and everything they had to say about him was good. And that's not because Timothy paid anybody to say anything. That's not because Timothy was trying to impress anyone. It's simply because of the way he was living. He was well spoken of by the brethren. And so it says Paul wanted him to go with him. He took him. He circumcised him because he, was, uh, he had a Jewish mother, although he had a Gentile father. And because of that could create a problem among the Jews, he took him and he circumcised him. So the Jews couldn't say, well, but his mother was Jewish. Why wasn't he circumcised? So he took that argument away from him. And it says in verse 4, they went through all the cities and delivered the decrees to keep. And these were the decrees from back in, in um, Acts chapter 15, where they had this meeting in Jerusalem to decide what to do about the people who said you had to obey the law in order to be saved. They said you must not, not only believe in Jesus Christ, but be circumcised and keep the law of Moses or you can't be saved. Now, that's really what legalism is. That's the biblical definition of legalism. In our times, people call legalism anytime you're told you have to do something. Yes. And that's wrong. That's wrong. That's not biblical, and it won't stand up against the light of the Bible. Paul says, I am not under the law. He means I'm not under the law of Moses. But he says, I am under the law of Christ. I'm not free from the law. I'm not free from law. I'm under the law of Christ. As a Christian... He knew very well the Lord's question in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Perhaps the most embarrassing question the Lord ever asked. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? But that's another subject. 
So he's delivering the decrees to them. He, he's telling them uh, that the brethren have met in Jerusalem. The apostles were there. The elders were there. And these spiritually minded brethren met and they said, no, you don't have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by doing things. And so many people today, in fact, the world today is full of religions that tell people, and this is what all religions have in common. It doesn't matter what kind it is. It might be the Jehovah's Witnesses, and it might be the Roman Catholics, and it might be anybody else. They have one thing in common. They tell people they have to do this and do this and do this in order to get to heaven. Do, 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 do. Now, the list might be different. With the Buddhists, they have what they call the eightfold path to nirvana. And, of course, nirvana means nothing. So why you got to take eight steps to get there, I have never figured out. <laughs> they say it's like um, you, you're absorbed into the collective consciousness. Whoever knows what that is. It's like a drop of water that falls into the ocean. It's still there, but it's lost its identity. It's, it's part of the oneness of the ocean. And they have all of these things that they say. But you've got to follow the eight steps to get there. And, of course, uh, Roman Catholicism teaches people that you have to keep the sacraments. You cannot have any grace from God, even though American Catholics will tell you that they believe in salvation by grace, but be very careful. Because the grace they tell you that they believe that they're saved by is a grace that they earn, and that's not grace. See, they say, if you go to Mass and participate in the sacrament, the Eucharist, then as a result or in, a, in response to your participation in that, you receive grace from God. So you're earning it by your behavior. So that's not grace. It can't be of works and grace at the same time. And they tell the people the things that they have to do. And, and they'll tell you, they'll be happy to tell you what you have to do to be saved. You have to do a lot of things. And you probably got started too late. And you may not make it. And, and as the priest will tell you, no one knows until they die. Because who knows if they've done enough. Since it's by works, who can know? All of these religions have this in common with, with exactly what the apostles we're saying in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 15, that salvation is by grace through faith and is not by works of the law. You see, Jesus did it all. When he died on the cross at Calvary, he said, finished. Finished. He didn't say, I did my part and now it's up to them to do their part. He said, finished. And if you can just get a hold of that, if you can grasp that simple truth, you will understand the difference between true biblical Christianity and every false version of Christianity and every cult and sect that there is in the world. There's that one simple difference. Besides all the, the myriad differences of rules and regulations and practices that they all might have and their differing philosophies, but all boil down, it all comes down to this. Man invents religions in which he tells people they have to do things in order to earn their way to heaven. And God provides someone who did everything and said it is finished Amen. when he died on the cross at Calvary. And that's Jesus Christ. So it's do or done. And you have to pick. And so this is why uh, this was so important. The apostles uh, sent out their messengers to go to all the churches and to make sure that especially among the Gentiles, and people knew that there was no requirement and that that was not a doctrine that was supported and preached by the apostles or any of the elders or saints of that time. There was no salvation by works. So they're delivering this, these decrees, and what was ordained by the apostles and elders. And it says the churches were established in the faith, verse 5, increased in number daily. And now they begin to move out. They're moving further west. And you read here the list of places they couldn't go. They couldn't. They went through Phrygia and the region of Galatia. And they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Then they went to Mysia. And they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit would not let them. He never tells us exactly how. But they were spiritually sensitive men. They were men who were seeking the will of God. They weren't sitting in a house somewhere saying, maybe someday God will let me do something 
wonderful for him. They were trying to serve the Lord. They were doing what they saw before them to do. They were going to preach the word. And there were some circumstances or some direction they were getting from God that didn't allow them to go to these places. So they come to the end of Turkey. This is what they're going through, modern-day Turkey. They come finally to Troas, which is, uh, according to some historians, the place where the ancient city of Troy was in that area. Only now there's a city there called Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul at night, and there's the Macedonian man. And so they see him. Or Paul sees him, and he hears what he has to say. He sees, apparently, by the way he's dressed. Or maybe he said, uh, I'm from Macedonia first. But at any rate, he said it when he began to speak to him, didn't he? Come over to Macedonia and help us. So there's no doubt where he's from. There's the call for help. Now, you can't be omnipresent. If the call... Uh, to serve God was based simply on need, then you'd have to be omnipresent. Because people everywhere need help. I haven't been everywhere in the world, but I've been on every continent except Australia. There's a lot more places I could go than the ones I've been to, and I can tell you this. Everywhere people need help. Everywhere. Everywhere. And you have, and I want to speak very frankly to you about this, man to man. You have more teaching and Bibles and books and churches and conferences and opportunities in the United States than people do anywhere else in the world. And I don't know if if I can make that get through your head. I don't know if you realize... What a tremendous opportunity you have. It's a blessing. Now, I'm not fussing at you. I'm not chastising you about it. I'm just trying to help you to see what a wonderful opportunity you have. You have a big plate full of food, spiritually speaking. And these people in these other countries don't have anything. they got a little saucer and there's an old wrinkled pea on it. And that's about it. They don't have a bookstore where they can go and buy things. They don't have any CDs. They don't have a room like this to meet in. Not in your wildest dreams. To sit down with brothers like you and enjoy fellowship. Well, they could wish for that. They could dream for that. That's fellowship to die for. And over here, boy, I tell you, one time in the mountains of Honduras, I was preaching at a little village. up Way up in the mountains with no electricity, no running water, except somebody had taken up. Uh, um, what do you call that, like garden hose type, but a little bit bigger around, uh, tubing like that rolled up, and they had stuck it in a stream and brought the water from the stream, and that was their running water. That's all they had. They grew coffee, took it down to the coast and sold it, and that was the way they lived. That was all they had. Subsistence farming, sold their coffee, lived up there, no license, and they wanted to have meetings all day and into the evening. So I finished preaching that night with a man standing there with a lantern, holding a lantern beside me and another one standing about halfway back in the middle of the brothers holding a lantern. They would take turns when his arm would get tired and another one would hold it so people could see. And we finished the meetings and I was walking down the trail. I had to go about half a mile to the... There was a man who had a house there with a, a little room he'd made for visitors to stay in for, because he was a believer and he had this little room there for believers to stay in if they came. And we were sleeping there on these rusty old cots that he had. It was all he had. And he gave it with all his heart. And we were glad to accept it. But as we were walking on this trail back, I noticed that there were three, four, five people. I don't know how many because it was dark. A little group of people walking on the trail in front of us. And the trail came to a place where it split off like this. And this group went to the right and we took the left fork. And I said to the fellow that was walking with us, who's that? He said, oh, those are people who came from the next village. He said, they, they walked over this morning. They were here when you got here. You didn't see them come. But they, they got up early at daybreak and came so that they could be here. The meeting started about 10. We left uh, the seacoast about 6 in the morning and walked three and a half, nearly four hours up the mountain to get to this village to preach. And that's not the same as hiking up the Half Dome at Yosemite. I've done that too. But we didn't have a meeting. There wasn't a bunch of us going up there to have an all-day Bible study. It was just mountain climbing for exercise. And I enjoy that. But these people got up and walked three hours barefoot, didn't have shoes, to get there. They stayed all day. 
to listen to the teaching. And that night, they walked at night, three hours back, barefoot on mountain trails to get to their house. And I don't know what time they got there. Because they wanted to hear the word of God. Because there weren't any Bible teachers or preachers up there. And it was so rare to have somebody, they wanted to take advantage of it. And I said, Lord, forgive me and forgive us for the times we've said, I'm too tired to go to prayer meeting tonight. I tell you, it's enough to make your face fall off just from pure shame. When you see how how these people are longing to come over and help us, he said. But you have to know where the Lord wants you to go. And right now, where the Lord has you, He has something for you to do. Until He calls you specifically and leads you specifically to something else, He got something for you to do and somebody for you to help right here. Paul was told, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so it says they went. And how did they go? After he had seen the vision, verse 10 says, immediately. And that's how we obey the Lord. When the Lord directs us, and this is a thing to develop about your Christian character. Make yourself a promise and make the Lord a promise. And when you see something in the Word that speaks to you about something in your life, something in your character, some, some activity or some priority, anything at all, as soon as you see it clear from the Lord what you ought to do, you're going to do it right away. Now, I like these people, you know, and I've done this too. When I was in university, I remember you don't want to study. You don't have much desire to study. And you got a test the next day. So what do you do? Sit down at the desk in the dorm room and, and uh, open up the window. And then you decide, nah, I can hear the guys out there playing ball on the court. And I want to be out there with them. So I don't want to hear that. So I shut the window. Turn on the fan. Boy, this desk is in a mess. Start cleaning off the desk and arranging the books and straighten out my bed. And then I decide I need a drink of water. So then I get up and go get a drink of water. And you know how it goes. One thing or another, an hour goes by and I had not study. Why? Because I don't want to study. And when you don't want to do something, you can find a thousand things to do so you don't have to get do. You know what I mean? It says immediately. Immediately. Now look further down. It says in verse 11, Loosing or leaving Troas, we came with a straight course or straight way. We came with a straight course. He didn't dilly-dally around. He went right there. Now look further down in the chapter when you come. Uh, ah, here it is. Verse 33. Look at the Philippian jailer. This jailer, when he hears the message of the gospel and trusts the Lord, look what it says he does. He took them in the same hour of the night. What does that mean? What does that mean? Immediately. He didn't say, yeah, well, I'm really tired, brothers. You know, tomorrow we got to, well, let's, let's, let's go to sleep. And you know what? When it comes to the Lord's work, we rest a lot. And when it comes to the secular work, we work a lot. Some of us are workaholics. And, and, I, and I know and I appreciate I know what it is to work 12 and 14 hour days and that kind of stuff. Sometimes you have to. And sometimes it just you just lose control and it consumes your life. So the world gets the big chunk and the Lord gets the leftovers. And sometimes he doesn't get anything at all. Let's see. It says the same hour of the night. He didn't say, let's go, go to sleep. He washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all of his. When? Immediately. Immediately. So, when God is teaching us something in the Word, you can find it just like I can. Say, I don't have any, any secrets. I don't have any book like the priest has a little, the, what do they call that in English? The missal uh, or the prayer book, you know, uh, where it says uh, what the people say in black and what the priest is supposed to say in red. You know, he's got the little guide right there. I don't have a little book here. That's, my Bible is the same as yours. You learn to read and to study the Bible. And one of the things you learn is when God wants to emphasize something, he repeats it. He says it over and over. When we were in pilot training, 
And they uh, wanted, I told you this story before, but some of you weren't here two years ago. So those of you who were, you just smile and say, <laughs> like you never heard that before, okay? And they used to tell us, uh, now on the test, uh, if we're going to, if there's something that we think we need to emphasize for the test, we'll stomp our foot or something like that. And that's exactly what they did. There's no way you could learn everything. At least I didn't think there was. And a lot of the rest of us didn't either. But there were certain things, operating parameters of the engines and the avionics, things that you had to know. Because if you're flying a, a plane in the Air Force and you're up at 20,000 feet and something goes wrong, you can't just pull over the side of the road and park and, and call AAA to come tow you off. You, know, you don't have to open the glove box and get out the warranty and see or read the little book. And when the red light comes on, what, by the time you figure that out, you'll be dead if you don't know how that plane works. So we had to know everything. So they'd ask us, you know, or they'd tell us, the, the operating parameters, for example, I can still remember. When the engine start, the exhaust gas temperature had to be between 3,000 and 5,000 degrees on the jet engines. So you're watching it. So, but how do we learn this? Well, when they're teaching you in the academic classroom, they say, on engine start, when you press the start button and hold it down, watch the exhaust gas temperature. It must be between, and he started doing this with his foot. It must be between 3,000 and 5, and we'd all, like crazy men. Why? Well, because you knew I was going to be on the test. When God wants us to remember something, when he wants to impress something on us, what does he do? You find this in here. It says, the same hour, immediately, straightway. What's he doing? He's hitting that point over and over again because that's one of the lessons he wants us to learn. So when you read a Bible passage, just read it through. That's the best thing you can do. Right? Don't go jump. Don't cheat. Don't, don't go run off to the commentaries. Learn to think. Commentaries are good to consult. But if you don't learn how to read the Bible and study it for yourself, then you just become a slave to other men's thoughts. Learn to read what the Bible says for yourself and think about it. Just read. Take a piece of paper out or, or take a little pencil and mark beside it if you want to. And ask yourself as you read it through several times, what's being repeated here? Is it a word? Is it a phrase? Is it a thought? That's one of the things that you can do in Bible study that will help you. There's a lot of others, but that's just the one that comes to mind as we're looking at this. So they went immediately, and that's how to obey. And they got there, it says. We come to the arrival in the beginning in verses 11 and 12. We came with a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. That was the, the port city, by the way, Neapolis. And from there they go inland to Philippi in verse 12. From there to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and the colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And so you get to that part. You read verses 11 and 12 and you just say, well, they got there and they said, well, here we are. And nothing happened. They saw a vision. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go to all these other places they tried to go. They saw a vision and they said, okay, it's there. And they went. It's like saying the fish ain't biting here and the fish ain't biting there. And there's nothing here, and I'm looking on the sonar. Oh, there it is over there. Ooh, and you motor over there, and you say, here we go. And they cast out, and nothing. A lot of times the Christian life is that way. What we call a slow start. The fact that God leads you somewhere, the fact that he leads you to a job, the fact that, that he leads you uh, to an area to live or, or gives you a ministry, a word, that doesn't mean that immediately you're going to see fireworks and explosions and, and the band comes out playing and people with banners. People like sensationalism. But a lot of the Christian life and Christian work is just the routine. Nothing happened, apparently. You can be sure they were looking for contacts. And maybe Paul was trying to remember, what did that man look like in that vision? Maybe he's looking at the faces of people on the street. I don't know. But it says, we were there, abiding in the city certain days, and apparently nothing happened. It doesn't mean nothing is going to happen. It just means that there are times in life, in the Christian life, where things are being prepared that you don't know about yet. God is working behind the scenes. Things are moving to a point that's coming up right away here in verse 13. But they're not there yet. 
But the fact that you can't see it doesn't mean that God isn't moving. And if they said, we were there certain days, nothing happened. And so we went back down to Neapolis. We got back on the boat and we went back to Troas and we got in the room in Troas and we said, now, what do we do wrong? I thought we were supposed to go to Macedonia, but we're not supposed to. Nothing happened. Suppose they'd have done that. Suppose they'd been like those children ring the doorbell and run off. That's right. You got to hang in there. You got to hang in there. Excuse me for saying this. Americans are impatient. They like they like to have everything right now. Instant tea, instant coffee, one hour dry cleaning, drive up to the bank. They don't want to get out of the car. Instant service. They don't want to wait. Well, sometimes I see people wait in the restaurants. They'll they'll wait to eat, but once they get at the table. They want the service to come fast. We're impatient. And things take time to happen. And if you're sure you're where the Lord wants you to be, He don't have to maintain you there by giving you uh, theater and dances and movies and instant results and everything. One of the tests of our character and, and the sureness of our calling is that we're able to stick in there when things aren't exploding and happen wonderfully like we think we ought to. We hang in there. They call it stick to And that's what they're doing. And then things begin to happen. You have the first conversion, verses 13 to 15. It says, On the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, we sat down and spoke to the women that gathered there. Now, who were these women? And why were they gathering there to pray? Well, he doesn't exactly tell us that. We come a little further down. We read about Lydia and that she's from the city of Thyatira. And it says she worshipped God or, or she was a God-fearer is another way to translate that. And we find out that in the city of Thyatira there was a synagogue. But in the city of Philippi there wasn't. And the Jews call the people who are the proselytes, who are the people who are interested, they're seeking after uh, the true God, and they're meeting there with the Jews, but they haven't confessed their faith in the God of Israel, the true and living God yet. And they call them the proselytes of the gate as they're coming in, or they call them God-fearers sometimes. We speak about them that way, God-fearers. Well, in order to have a synagogue, you had to have a, a minimum of ten men. If there weren't ten men, there couldn't be a synagogue. And so if there were no synagogue, then there's no rabbi uh, teaching them there. There's, there's no lessons in the synagogues. They stood up to read the scriptures and they sat down to teach them. And that's where they received their teaching. Well, they have this. So you have Lydia who's come from a city where there was a synagogue. And she's a God-fearer, probably a proselyte of the gate, a person who had left behind pagan religion and who was seeking for the true God. But she wasn't there yet. She wasn't there yet. She didn't have the gospel figured out yet. Now, just because you decide to listen and to study the Bible and to try to see what it's all about, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Lydia was missing something still. And you, we can talk about Cornelius. You go back to that, and we don't have time to go into that all right now. But Cornelius, he gave alms. That means he gave offerings, monetary offerings. And he prayed. And he even saw a vision where an angel from heaven spoke to him. And you know what? I want you to be mistaken about this now. He wasn't a believer yet. He wasn't saved. His sins were not forgiven. He wasn't born again. You can do all that. You can have all those kind of experiences and be trying your best and you can still be lost. And that's why that angel said to him, you can send over to the city of Joppa and call for Peter, Simon, Peter to come and he'll tell you what you need to do. And when he got to Cornelius' house, he started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, how he died for our sins, how he was buried and rose again. And it said right then the Holy Spirit came on those people that were in Cornelius' house and they all believed they were all saved right there. And Cornelius at the head of the pack, he got saved right there. So these ladies are meeting to pray. 
This, this wasn't a ladies' Bible study. Now, the ladies want to have a Bible study? We're not going to get into that right now. But this isn't the verse to use as a, a base for that. Because these ladies weren't even saved. You know what I'm saying? These, these are unsaved people. They're God-fearers. They're seeking after God. But, but they don't know the Lord yet. They're out there praying because they didn't need synagogue to go to. So they're out there with Lydia, who probably came from that synagogue in Thyatira. And she told them what she knew. And they're just there praying. And who knows if it wasn't maybe because of their prayers that that vision came to Paul at night to come over into Macedonia and help us. Who knows? At least I can say, I think, it was in part in answer to the prayers of those women. I don't think that was all of it, but that was a good part of it, wasn't it? There they were praying. Look out when women pray. Look out when women pray. They're praying by the river. That old song, down by the riverside. (laughs) And that's where they are. And Lydia, see, she's listening. It says she heard us, verse 14. And that's the first step. She heard us. She's paying attention. And that's what Lydia did. Okay, I want you to follow this here. Don't get things out of order. Don't get the cart in front of the donkey. She heard him. And it says, whose heart the Lord opened. You see, first of all, she came and listened. She paid attention. And then the Lord opened her heart because she's listening. She's paying attention. She's trying to understand. And God gave her uh, an understanding. He enabled her to understand the things that she was hearing because she was trying to. She wanted it. And you know why a lot of people never understand the gospel and never really are born again and never find salvation in Christ because they don't really want it. I always worry about these people. They're not paying attention. They're looking up, wondering, how did they change those light bulbs, those fluorescent lights? That's a long way. I wonder if they have a ladder. They're looking around, trying to figure out where it is. Or, well, they're, Yeah, they're, they're wondering, you know, uh, we're going to get t- done in time to get to the restaurant and be the first one in line. And it's all going in here and out there. They don't hear a thing. A fly goes by. They're distracted by it. Now, I'm going to tell you something. It ain't that way when they're watching the Celtics play. <laughs> Their wife can be standing right there beside them saying something to them. Honey, did you take out the trash? Uh-huh. He ain't heard a word, she said. It's that game. So they're distracted because they're not really interested. She's interested. She's listening. She's hearing them. That's what it means. She's hearing them. I hear you. I hear what you're saying. And God answers that. If you want to have a desire to hear and to know, God can answer it. And if you don't want to hear it, ain't no angel going to tell it to you. It'll make you understand it. If you're just doing it to please somebody, and you're not doing it to find out, to know, you want to know. You want to find out. You want to have this. She was a God-fearer. She worshipped God. She's trying to find the truth. And God loves to meet those kind of people and to give them what they're looking for. And most people get what they're looking for. You just want to be entertained? You can have that. She got saved. says she listened and she was baptized. She loved the Lord. Her heart changed. She was baptized. People get baptized not to get saved. They get baptized because they have been saved. It's the way they declare publicly what's happened to them. If you love me, keep my commandments, the Lord said. See, and that's what she did. And then she had them come into her house. And, and, and so we know that she was saved because she took them into her house. She loved them. They were just men that came out there to preach to start with. And here they are. Here she is persuading them. First they persuade her with the gospel. And then she persuades them to come into her house and live there. She gave them a place to stay. I don't know where they stayed before that. And then the counterattack. Servant girl, and she's a real study in differences, isn't she? She isn't anything like Lydia. This girl who has this spirit, and she can uh, uh, divination. She can tell people where their jacket is that they lost or something like that. And people are going to her and paying money. And what's she doing with that money? It ain't staying in her pocket. It's all going to her masters. There were men who were exploiting that girl. 
And when she followed them along, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, she said, Really, they showed to you the way of salvation. She didn't, in verse 17, she didn't even include herself. But what does she know about the way of salvation? And there might be somebody here tonight that can use terms like that. You heard it all your life, maybe, about being saved and salvation and trusting the Lord. And, I, and, I, and if you're not saved, those are just words like a parrot. You don't have any idea what they mean. They're not real to you. She didn't know what they meant. Paul had to cast that demon out of her. And when he did, and there wasn't any big exorcism ceremony, when he cast it out, then her masters came after him. Why? Money, money, money. What makes the world go round? See, that's what happened. And so they drag them before the magistrates. And why are the magistrates going to listen? Because those men have money. And the crowd is there. And those people influence the crowd. How can they influence the crowd? Because they have money. And then they pull out that old trick, the anti-Semitism. You know, they say, these, the first thing they say when they start accusing these men are Jews. They get it out right at the beginning to excite the crowd against them. And it ends up being, they drag them out there, they tear their clothes off and they beat them and they throw them into jail. But those men didn't go get a lawyer. That's the opposition, 16 to 25. The satanic opposition. But those men didn't go get a lawyer. It says they prayed and sang hymns. And the prisoners heard them. And people hear you. What do you do when you suffer? And when I say you, you know I'm including me, right? Because every time I do this, I got three pointing back at me. See? They hear us. Are we just like the people in the world? Do we react to difficulty just like the people in the world? There was something different. And that different thing affected the prisoners and it affected the jailer. That earthquake came at midnight and he came running out there. He was going to kill himself. And I'm sure every prisoner in there said, go ahead and do it, you blankety, blankety, blank. Except Paul and Silas. And they said, don't do yourself any harm because if you commit suicide, you're harming yourself. That's the last sin in the chain. God gives life and God takes it. Don't do yourself any harm. They said. And then the jailer asked that question. What must I do to be saved? He went running in there trembling. He was different now. First it was the earth that was trembling. And then it was the jailer. And you know what? I don't really know about some of these people who just calmly say, Oh yeah, I, I like to accept Jesus. They ain't trembling. They're not not trying to be saved from any sin. They're just trying to do something to make their aunt happy or their wife happy or their mother happy or their father happy or their girlfriend happy. They're not trembling. This man wanted to know, boy, I sure am glad it was Apostle Paul there. I sure am glad it wasn't any priest to start telling him all this long list of things he had to do. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you have to do. You have to trust Because you can't save yourself. You have to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that isn't all he said. Because after they said that, the next verse, which people don't ever quote, it says, they spoke to him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. So then they went and explained all about the gospel, all about how we're sinners and Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. And everybody who trusts in him, Hebrews says, He is able to save completely all who come to God by Him. Not by Mary, and not by the church, and not by the saints, and not by works, and not by anything else. All who come to God by Him. And he got it. He got an earful. And he believed, it says, down in verse 34. Well, they started seeing the results right away. He took them. He washed their stripes. He was baptized right away. He took him into the house. He gave him something to eat. And it says he rejoiced. And it says in the King, King James here, it says believing in God. It might say that in your I'm going to tell you what it says in the Greek. There isn't any preposition there. The word in is not there in the language the New Testament was written. It says he rejoiced believing God. Because you can believe in God and not believe God. That's a horse of a different color. You believe God tonight? You believe in God? 
That's a good start. But the demons believe in God. But they don't believe God. They don't trust that what he says is true. And there's a lot of difference. A lot of people are going to go to hell believing in God. But not because they don't believe God. That's the problem. So he did believe. And he's, he's glad. He's rejoicing. And so the day comes. Finally, we come down to the end here, verses 35 to 40, the sudden departure. The day comes and the magistrates send their message and they say, let him go now. And Paul, why does he do this? Why does he uh, call them out on the carpet about beating Romans and putting them in jail? He could have said that before he took a beating. <laughs> he wasn't doing it to keep himself from suffering for the Lord. He's thinking about the church in Philippi. He's going to have to leave and go on his way. And the church in Philippi, he, want, he doesn't want the authorities getting down on this church and, and abusing them. And so he's doing this, we think, to say, <clears throat> okay, I took this for the sake of the Lord, but you owe me one. It's like hanging the sword of Damocles over the head of the authorities. You know that sword that hangs by a thread in mythology? It could fall at any time. See, you beat us and put us in jail, and we're Romans. And, of course, I wouldn't tell the governor about that unless it was convenient. <laughs> That's the implication. So they come out. The authorities come and say, please, Mr. Paul, sir. They change the way they talk to them. They, they beg them. They implore them. They ask them real nice if they wouldn't mind, please, doing this. And like that, my brother used to say, and our friends back in the South, when you wanted something and you said, eh, would you do it, please? And, and they would say to you, say pretty, please. Say, would you do it pretty, please? And say, say pretty, please, with sugar on top. And in Spain, when they say, would you do something? They say, if you ask me on your knees, I will. Or I tell you what, those magistrates got down on their knees and they said, please, Mr. Paul, sir, pretty please with sugar on top. So what did they do? Those men had spent a night, had had a terrible beating, had spent a night in jail. They hadn't sleep. That was a midnight conversion of that man, and we didn't have time to mention that. But I tell you what, if God's speaking to your heart tonight, you better not go to bed until you get it settled. Some people only wake up in an earthquake. You better get it straight. He didn't say, I got to talk to them tomorrow. He said, I got to talk to them right now. So they had this night, all night, where they didn't sleep and they had a lot of wounds. And they went in and saw the brethren. And that's a good name for believers. It's with a small b, you see. That's a good name for believers. They don't use the name Christian in the scriptures. It's the least used name for believers in Jesus Christ. Of all the names that it uses, Christian is the one they use the least. It's the one they use the most today. Believers, brethren, disciples, saints. Those are the words nobody uses today because they don't have much meaning the way people live. They saw the brethren and says they comforted them. The men that had the stripes on their back and the, and the red eyes... And the worn out bodies were comforting the others. Because that's Christianity in the New Testament. They're glad to have been able to be there, to preach the gospel, even to suffer for Jesus' sake, to see those people saved. And that's the mark they left on Philippine. When they left, they didn't leave any organization there. There wasn't any Philippian Christian gardening society or anything. It was a church. I like gardens. I'm not getting down on gardens. But they didn't start organizations and parachurch organizations and fundraising organizations. They preached the gospel and they took the believers, the ones who believed, and they formed them together into congregations, into local churches, and they moved on to the next place and started over. Because the gospel has an impact in a life, in a family, in a city. It can have an impact in a nation. But for the gospel to have an impact, there's got to be men who are willing to live it and preach it. And what about you? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we can be together. And we ask you, we want your word to have an impact.
in our lives. We want your word not to be an accessory in our lives, an option. We want it to be the engine. We want it to guide us our every step. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And we pray that you will mold us and make us into the men that you want us to be so that through us your word can reach others who need to hear it here and all around the world. And we're not afraid to ask you, Lord, tonight that blessing would flow from this church right here in San Ramon to the ends of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to...